this weekend. We're in, installing a show that's going to be opening next weekend, uh, the Cameron Jamie survey. So if you're not able to see things while you're here. But you're going to be seeing a lot of uh, artworks today during this, uh, uh, during this plenary session. And um, it was, I was thrilled to be invited to be part of this conference because the issues that this conference is dealing with are things that I deal with all the time as a contemporary curator, but from a slightly different perspective, from, um, uh, in that we are dealing with uh, reproduction and what artworks are when they're uh, fully reproducible in, uh, via very sort of different systems and different needs. Like we're always trying to uh, figure out how to borrow works, show works, explain works, uh, and... Uh, uh, and explain why things are art or valid as art in today's discourse. And these lines come up uh, all the time. Um, and actually, one of the, uh, when, when I said the theme appropriation, in, uh, as this is one of the topics, we've worked, uh, I mean, and I, my work as a curator, I've dealt with appropriation uh, many times. I had actually worked on one of the first retrospectives of Sturdevant, the American-born French uh, Paris-based artist who started doing hardcore appropriation where she would reproduce uh, artist shows piece by piece in the exact spaces when they were available uh, using the exact methodology of those artists. Uh, she started doing that in the mid-60s. And there was a crisis point that was sort of reached with that. And actually her career didn't... Uh, engender any discourse at all. She also said that, that she thought in the 60s her work failed because uh, the U.S. system is market-based, unlike the European system, and uh, caused people to just shut down and get so hostile. And then when artists started revisiting appropriation um, in the mid-80s and looking at uh, particular artists like Sherry Levine doing re-photography where photographs would be taken uh, of classic photographs reproduced out of books, where the uh, actual quality of the art book and the idea that the art book was part of her immediate landscape and therefore something that as an artist she had a right to photograph. And uh, it also caused this wonderful sense of anxiety in the viewer. What were they looking at? Uh, if you're looking at a photograph that Cherry Levine has taken of a Walker Evans classic photograph, um, the end result is still a photograph, and the differences uh, between the source image and the Sherry Levine version are much harder to see. And you've actually got to keep a mental process to remember that you're looking at a photograph of a high-quality art book reproduction. Those sort of issues are exactly the ones that we're going to be dealing with today uh, in the panel, but from uh, the perspective of today. Because one of the... Uh, uh, in the art world proper... Uh, one of the things is that moving image, film, film presented in gallery museum contexts, is uh, the, probably the, the dominant form of today. Uh, while there is an incredibly uh, vibrant and uncontrollable art market for traditional art forms of painting, sculpture, and photography, new media in the gallery situation is, uh, is standard. And, it is, and those of us who work as curators are always figuring out what these things are. Like when I was trained as a curator, the fact that I would have to know the differences between uh, an 800 lumens and a 2500 lumens projector and how you sync those, I never, you know, that was not something we taught, we were taught, my generation of curators was taught in school. We've all learned those things now. But what's happened is because um, of the way uh, the art system in America is based on a market, uh, the commodification issue comes up right away and issues of control. 
uh, kind of who gets to control where images are seen. Uh, is a projected digital image uh, the same in all contexts? Does the artist get to control in all situations where those images are seen, uh, the installation format of them. Uh, other issues about where people come and go uh, are, uh, unlike a, a cinema space where people arrive at the beginning of a movie in a gallery situation, um, uh, people are free to come and go as they're pleased, and those issues of control come up also. So when I started looking at the themes uh, and the way uh, my practice dealt, uh, overlapped with the themes of this conference, uh, these two issues came up, one of which was uh, uh, ubiquity, in that we now have uh, a, a televisual environment where moving images are everywhere, and the idea of what, what is special, and why would something need to be represented in a gallery museum space? Why would someone have to leave the comfort of their normal viewing environment to go to someplace else to see something? What's added... Uh, and what served, and then the issue, uh, the other issue is uh, artificial scarcity. Uh, uh, the control of images is not only deal, dealing with artists' rights, but also with uh, following the example of uh, the creation of the market for fine art photographs of doing limited edition, keeping control, and uh, just by way of one little anecdote to tell the story, uh, when when I was starting off as a curator, uh, with people who made moving image work would just routinely send out VHS tapes of the material, including artists who were coming up at that point, the Matthew Barneys. And you would get these in the mail. If you were, like me, a curator and a critic, you would just receive them. And then that stopped. It dried up all of a sudden. Uh, and it because, because the market, uh, the, the, the need to control this uncontrollable medium became so strong. That also impacts uh, those of us who teach. If you are teaching a class, it used to be you could just uh, borrow from friends, borrow from galleries, anything you wanted to show. That's not the case anymore. Uh, even for uh, moving image works in the shows that we are doing, uh, if a critic or a scholar wants to visit them, we have to have them make an appointment, come to the office, and watch them in a control setting. These really affect the, the landscape for all of us. So um, I invited three speakers, all of whom are practicing artists, and all of whom uh, work on this edge. My first speaker will be Mike Middleman, who works uh, is uh, uh, works as an uh, as an artist, but he has a second practice as the publisher of Aspect, which is the DVD magazine of New Media, uh, very uh, widely distributed, and it's specifically dealing with um, trying to get this material out there. And uh, he has a lot of issues with uh, trying to negotiate control. And he also, and I hope we speak a little, little bit of this, has uh, taken a, a form, a form that's out there in the culture of the director's voiceover. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you get a DVD of a film and you can watch it again if you really love it with the director's commentary. But he's uh, replaced that with curators or critics or sometimes the artists themselves adding commentary to their own work. Uh, and it's a, it was a form that was ripe for the sort of educational mission of a DVD magazine. Uh, my next speaker will be Tony Cokes, who is, uh, has had a very long and varied career as part of uh, Express and as a solo artist and as a uh, professor. And I've asked him to speak today about uh, projects he's done uh, which deal with the culture of uh, digital music and uh, electronic music and 
and the idea of the sort of universal library and his own uh, ordering systems and and all the, uh, and there are certain relationships to these websites where uh, like there's the website that has the whole history of electronic music and Tony will show a piece and talk a little bit about his work in that context and my final speaker will be uh, Andres Laracuente who uh, is working with uh, the form of the uh, uh, the fetish websites, particular uh, sort of more obscure fetish websites, where when someone else's uh, erotic fetish that, if when when you don't share it, in my mind, turns into some strange performance art. And he'll speak a little bit about his uh, experience and doing works that exist both as uh, online as on fetish websites and in the gallery system. So, I, uh, not, without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Mike Middleman. Thanks. Um. So yeah, thanks for the introduction, Bill, and um, you actually covered a lot of what I was going to say, so I'll try to expound in, in a slightly new way. Um, <clears throat> so uh, five, four and a half years ago, I founded Aspect um, uh, because I, again, as a teacher, was frustrated that I couldn't get my hands on a lot of contemporary moving image art. Um, and also as an artist, uh, the venues for distribution for my work seemed to be not just limited, but also in the wrong format. Um, I was doing interactive installation art, and sending out still images with two and a half pages of descriptive text seemed like it was a bit much, um, especially since I was continuous doing video, continuously creating my own video documentation. And I did a little research and found out what it takes to uh, not just create a DVD, but replicate a DVD and distribu distribute a DVD. And I said, you know, why isn't somebody doing this? And uh, I asked a bunch of people, and they said, no good reason. And I asked them if they wanted to do it, and they said, no, thank you. Uh, so I decided to do it myself. Um, and it was, um, so I just started collecting works. And the first idea was that I was just going to purely take artist documentary, documentary videos and distribute them as is, no additional content. Um, and in discussing with a, an early uh, consultant on the project, George Fifield, um, he said, you know, you need a little bit more. Get a, get a curator, get me, get Bill, shove them up against a wall, put a camera in their face, and have them talk about the work. And I thought about that a little bit, and I said, you know, these DVDs, they've got this multiple audio track format, and people are getting used to the director's commentary, so why don't we try that? So I did that for the first volume. And so the, the final format is, um, for any work, you can watch the video directly edited and composed by the, the artist. Aspect doesn't edit the videos. We don't make the videos. Uh, it's their video. We are purely a distribution uh, format uh, for the video. The only thing that we add is the uh, commentary by a curator, and that's a second audio track. So you can watch the video without the commentary, and then you can watch it again with the commentary. <clears throat> um, the other main goal was really to get the art out there at an, in an affordable and comfortable way. Um, Affordable is important because you're not going to get it out there if it's $5,000 a piece. And comfortable in the sense that you have to be able to watch it in uh, the comfort of your own space. You guys sitting where you are right now are probably going to watch these videos in a more comfortable setting than they've ever been shown in a gallery. You have a back on your chair. It's not made of steel or wood. Um, and you, know, you can sort of sit back and, and the room slightly darkened. Most galleries, you, know, you sit down... There's a bench with no back, and you pull out some little form, and it says, you know, video, 45 minutes long. And usually I see that, and I go, yeah, thanks, but no thanks, and, and leave. And then I call up all the curators I know, and I say, hey, can, can you get me a copy of that so I can watch it at home? Because 
frankly, that's the context I want to watch it in because I'm going to enjoy it more. I'm going to engage in it more. I'm going to really spend the time to watch it. I might even watch it twice if I can watch it in my living room, but I'm not going to watch it once if, uh, if it's in an uncomfortable setting. So those were the, the goals of Aspect, to really get it out there and get people to engage in it in a, in a new way. Um, so um, the, the goal, so it's direct and it's also educational. So those are the, those are the two uh, format goals. Um, as you can imagine, this is in direct conflict with two groups. Um, it's in direct conflict with galleries who make a percentage off of uh, low-volume, high-cost exchanges. Um, first, so that's, there's two conflicts there. They don't want to deal in high-volume, low-cost. You know, I could definitely bring this to a gallery and say, hey, and that was my first thought. Why doesn't a gallery sell 10,000 copies at $50 a piece instead of, uh, you know, 50 copies at $10,000 a piece? And the answer is it's a lot more work and it's just not their, their business format. The other conflict is 50% of what? You know, when artists give me the work, they give it to me the same way um, they send slides to Art Forum or Art in America for an article. Uh, I don't pay them. Uh, if this is really a way for the people to get to know their work. So the galleries, the artists that have representation, their galleries often say, you know, 50% of nothing, thanks but no thanks. Um, so those are the conflicts. Now the support, you know, who does Aspect support? Well, it supports the artists because they need to have their work known. Um, and it also supports the artists because the genre can only develop if people are seeing what other artists are doing. Um, an early example, actually, in Volume 3, which is the one after the one I'm showing, this, this volume is four years old now. Um, I got a work from London by an artist where um, the artist got slapped in the face. And then he sort of righted himself and he got slapped in the face again, and then he righted himself and he got slapped in the face again. And I had just seen a Bronson's video where someone gets slapped in the face, and I'd just seen another video where someone got slapped in the face, and I'd just done... Uh, studio visit at, at, a, at grad studios where one of the artists grabbed a video camera and got slapped in the face and I said you know what we're getting a lot of slap in the face videos <laughs> and I called up Bill actually and I said Bill I got a slap in the face video and, and he said so I said you know we've all seen hundreds of slap in the face videos and he said well is it a good one and I said yeah I actually like it a lot <laughs> it's got a sort of cinematic quality which you'll hear at the end is sort of where I think a lot of this work is going it's very the, the commentator sort of sent a note, because I don't get the full commentary, I get what they think they'd like to say. They sent a note about sort of the moment in film that is the violent moment, that you're, you're hoping for it to go away as quickly as possible. And in the case of this one, it was actually a 14-minute performance where he gets, it wasn't a loop, he gets slapped, stands up, gets slapped again. And I said, yeah, no, it is a good one. And, and Bill said, all right, so publish it, and maybe we can all move on from the slap in the face video. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the point is, you know, younger artists, new generations, they don't have the uh, iconography to build off of. And so they can't take the work to the next level. They can't say, well, that was an interesting way to do it, but I've got a new idea. I'm going to take that and, and do it in a new context with new meaning, with, new, with my own personal agenda, etc. Um, so that's how it supports the artists through development. Um, also, Aspect supports historians, right? Because there's no historical record of a lot of the works that happened. If you got to the show, great. If you didn't, oh well, you're relying on either another critic's point of view, which was great in the 1900s, but uh, is a little unnecessary in the 21st century. Um, 
and there's no record. You can't see things moving forward. You can't compare things to their context. And a lot of these works, a lot of contemporary new media, in my opinion, the context, the cultural, the social, the technological context is so important, but that context changes constantly. So it's really interesting to see the same work today, see it again in six months, we'll look at it again six months after that and go, wow, that went from being relevant to irrelevant to relevant to irrelevant again. So Aspect is supporting half of the artistic community and in direct conflict with the other half of the artistic community. And these two halves need each other to survive and to flourish. So um, what do you do? You end up in a sit with a situation that I call, uh, the goal is many eyes and few hands. Right, so scarcity is important, but it's also important that a lot of people know about it. You know, I can have one thing, there's only one of this rubber band that's just like this in the world, and I can keep it in my pocket, while it's got absolutely no value, because you don't know about it. So the goal is to have everybody have seen this rubber band, but only for me to own the rubber band. Um, and that's easy in um, material and media where the distribution format is clearly derivative from the original. So having an, a photograph of a painting, it's not the same thing. But when you're starting with a digital format and the distribution is essentially the exact same item, how do you get many eyes but few hands? Um, and that's a real conflict. You can get many eyes and many hands. You just give one out to everybody in the world. You can have few eyes and few hands, which um, a lot of artists do. They just kind of keep it in their pocket. Um, but that doesn't make any real value for the artist or the community. So you need to get many eyes and few hands. And that's the real difficulty. So what's the resolution? Well, there have been a number of resolutions with Aspect, and I'm going to play you one uh, piece right here. Um, this is a work by Anthony DeCenza um, called Object 8242600, and actually has a number of relevancies to this particular um, conference, because what Anthony does is he watches television for a duration. So this is from uh, uh, 824 to 826, so what's that, August 24th to the 26th in 2000. He watched TV for two days, and this is essentially a compression of all of that using a computer algorithm. Um, the commentator, usually the way Aspect works is the, the commentator and the artist come to me as a pair so that the commentator can give background and context to the work that isn't just what's seen on the video. So I got this work, and um, I didn't actually understand it, but I, I said, you know, let's go with it. And all of a sudden, the, the um, well, the, actually, the commentator wanted to work with the artist, and their gallery said no. And the artist said, all right, I'm making a work of art that's not for sale. It's just for distribution and publication. So this is outside of my oeuvre. This is purely a, uh, a work for this format, for this methodology. And if you think about that... Um, there are some precedents for that, but not quite this uh, pure a, a uh, not quite this pure a copy. So a good precedent for that would be the movie trailer. It's not the two-hour movie; it's a two-minute trailer, and you send it out as widely as you can, and it's representative of the movie. In this case, it's just another work. The only difference between this work and the work that's sold through his gallery for many thousands of dollars is his decision to distribute it through one methodology over another. Um, the other reason that this is uh, obviously um, important is because the, you know, this is this is modern media being compressed. Um, the other reason I really liked this piece and the reason this was a really important moment for me in Aspect was because it reaffirmed um, the format that I had chosen. So I got this video, 
and I sort of needed to go to press and I said, all right, we'll go to press with it. I don't get it, but, um, you know, I don't have to get everything. Um, so I accepted the piece and then, uh, the, I, months later I got the, uh, the curator's commentary and Marissa Olson, who did the commentary for this, she's now the editor of Rhizome. Some of you may know her through that, um, talks about, uh, montage, the compression of the, of the modern media, the some issues that also come up with, with Tony's work, with sort of uh, oversaturation of imagery, um, but also the Kuleshov effect from Soviet montage, the idea that in between this frame and the next frame, your eye makes a third frame, which is really the transition between frame one and frame two. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> this became my favorite work that I'd ever published. And that really reaffirmed to me that the format that I was working with was working because there's a lot of art out there that you may not get right away. You need some of this other information. And so the format that I have here, you can watch the piece purely directly without any intervention. You know, this is the work directly from the artist. Or you can watch it with the commentary and then you can go back and watch it again. And I did it in exactly that format and went from just not getting the work at all to really liking it a lot and loving it and really finding it an extremely important work. Um, so that's one uh, resolution. Another resolution which uh, really hasn't been touched on is the documentation resolution. In that case, there is no conflict the con because they're sending documentation of something else. So in the most recent volume, for instance, uh, we have um, Janet Cardiff and George Burris's Miller uh, Opera for a Small Room, which was shown here at the list, and they did very good documentation of the piece. And so I'm distributing documentation. There's a minor conflict there for me, which is that there are not a lot of artists at their level that are making that quality documentation of their installation. And it really requires the artist to do two works. They make the work, and then when they're done, they have to make the documentation of the work. And I tell them that that documentation has to be nearly as good as the original was in the first place. Um, the problem is, if it's as good, if it conveys as much, then they shouldn't have made the original work, they should have just made the documentation, then the documentation becomes the work, then it's single chain of video, now we're back into the original conflict. Um, so it really is kind of a, you know, we're never gonna get past this kind of moment. Um, the other, um, yeah, so, so that's the, the process with installation art. Also, you know, it doubles the amount of work for those types of artists. All right, you made the work, now you have to make the documentation. Whereas single channel video artists, They've made the work, now, they, now it's ready to distribute, now they just have to deal with the original conflict. Um, what I tell my students and other artists that I work with who are installation artists is, you know, in this day and age, 90 to 95 percent of the people who are going to see your work are going to see the documentation. They're not going to see the original. So you really need to make sure that your documentation is important and uh, conveys as much information as it can without running into that, well, maybe it just should have been a single channel video. Um, the other approach that has been taken by a number of artists who've come to Aspect, the first was Kristen Lucas. Um, she sent us a video. We liked it a lot. Um, and uh, Liz Nofziger, who's the managing editor, did a little research, a little background on, the, on it, and discovered that EAI, which is a distributor of single-channel videos, uh, sells this work for, I believe it was maybe $800. Um, or you could get it through Aspect as one of seven works for $25, which is how much we sell each DVD for. And we went back to Kristen and said, you know, uh, there's very little likelihood that they're going to like this. And she went, okay, uh, re-edited the video, took about 
30 seconds off of an eight-minute piece and said, all right, it's a different piece now. Um, which, as one gallerist mentioned, you know, that's sort of like saying, I'll sell you the whole painting for a million dollars, I'll rip the tiny little corner off the edge, and I'll sell it to you for five bucks. Um, and that's really, you know, where we are in trying to resolve these conflicts between the many eyes, the few hands, and the two different halves of the artistic community. So what's the future? Um, the future is continued conflict, uh, and the future is going to have to be some new models for distribution and... Um, new business models for art. The problem is um, who's going to generate those models? Who's going to implement those models? How do we uh, turn a very a, a monolithic uh, industry around to say, you know, maybe there have to be other methodologies. Maybe the gallery, you know, you have to work with distributing versions of the single channel piece as your form of promotion to make sure that that other, the, the main one that you're selling for $100,000 stays worth $100,000. The other thing that I tell galleries when I go to you know, art fairs and they say, well, aren't you just stealing my money? I say, no, I'm actually uh, making sure that there's a secondary market for your artists. Um, your artist can be a flash in the pan and have one huge show and then never be heard from again because of the many eyes and few hands. Three collectors bought them, stuck them in their house and never showed them again. Or they can go into Aspect, become part of every educator's library and be taught from for the next 25 years, and that work is going to maintain its value for 25 years. So um, there is sort of a third way, or maybe it's not a third way. There are new models that can be implemented. Just going back to um, some of the other, uh, just sort of one last thing I want to mention, which I think a lot of the other panelists are going to show you, is where I think the media itself is going. Um, and going back to the example of the slap in the face video, um, the th reason I liked that slap in the face video so much was because it was uh, shot with uh, very cinemagraphic uh, technologies and techniques and production values. And one of the things that I um, tell students or people who are looking at this type of media is, you know, you have to be aware of the fact that your audience are not purely art school people who never watch television and don't go to the movies. They have an enormous amount of visual language that they're inundated with constantly through television and movies. And you can't sort of ignore that. You either have to embrace it or respond to it, but you can't pretend it doesn't exist. You can't make a painting that looks just like Bart Simpson and say, well, I never watched The Simpsons. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, people are going to see that as Bart Simpson, even if, you know, you didn't know that Jiggy Jaggy Hair was, you know, a part of the visual language. Um, so things like, you know, the dolly shot, which is sort of the ultimate high, you know, very expensive shot in cinema that's not available to everyday artists are going to uh, become more and more the language. And actually, Tony sort of finds ways to use them in, in the work that's in, in, uh, in Aspect. And other artists are sort of in in incorporating more and more of the language and material of modern media. And with that, I'm going to pass the baton. show a kind of long clip from a work to give you a sense of the kinds of projects that I've been working on lately. But I'll talk to you for a little while about um, where my work is coming from. My work operates by putting everyday images, texts, and sounds 
in different contexts by repositioning them. But I not only appropriate and rearrange specific text sounds and images, I'm also involved in repurposing known forms and genres. The music video, high concept advertisements, documentary, discographies, or theoretical essays are rearranged and layered to produce meaning in ways and perhaps for audiences that were not originally intended. I participated in Swipe the Music Project from April 1997 to December 2000. Swipe began as a spin-off from Express, the Visual and Media Arts Collaborative. I found it in 1991 and dissolved in January 2001. Swipe was a conceptual art pop band designed to produce generic music. By that I mean a form of music, like popular music, that is really less about um, the lyric content, you could say, um, love, or the expression of emotion, or the idea of personal expression, as much as it's a symptom and a kind of product and feature of life under post-industrial capitalism. Swipe, which was headquartered in Boston, was a central focus for my practice for about three years. During the first year, in 1997 and 98, I wrote a set of essays um, about popular music. These essays led me to produce a series of short video works called Pop Manifestos. After ending my association with Swipe in, at the end of 2000, I decided that um, I wanted to continue to focus on popular music as a part of my practice. And just the period of time that I'd already invested in it kind of led me to extend, archive, and develop the project as a video and an audio installation. The video installation featured a large projection of what was intended to be the final work in the series, and it's called One Bang 2004, and I'm going to show a pretty long clip from it. And in the installation version, it was accompanied by six monitors that showed the other sort of shorts um, involved in the series. And I thought it was a kind of nice coda for the piece. And I exhibited all the elements together um, in January 2005 at um, the International Film Festival Rotterdam at a cultural institution called Tent. And it was, and subsequently I've been able to probably show the installation about four other times. But meanwhile, the individual sort of components, the short videotapes that are heavily text-based, have been circulated as single-channel works in a variety of contexts. So for the past decade, I've been deeply engaged with audio cultures. I believe that this interest grew out of my work with appropriated imagery and migrated to sound, but sound had always been kind of an important part of my work. I have um, actually... In some ways, the soundtrack is kind of the first thing that I've, you know, usually commit in a production process. So for me, I've always thought of sound as a kind of rich intertextual element with a lot of potential to structure, layer, and complicate the visual. In my practice, sound is never an afterthought. It's always a constitutive and central element. My decision to work more often with text as a primary image register in my videos has made the place of sound even more important. So in many ways, it's particularly apt that at least in this series of works that the subject matter is sound itself, its production, circulation, and reception. The pop manifestos blur the boundaries between 
music video and art, critical analysis and advertising, history writing and polemic. Collectively, the series amounts to an eclectic and wide-ranging examination of the power of pop music, its artists, audiences, and markets. In realizing, distributing, and selling for profit certain political ideas, and I'd even go so far as to say certain key emotions in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. In making the videos, I play a variety of roles. Um, I'm the artist, I collect, I'm a collector, a curator, a marketer, and a critic. The tapes operate across those discourses and hopefully you know, engender a kind of response from the viewer even if they're not familiar with the text that I'm talking about. It's, it's almost as though a kind of way of thinking through one's relationship with popular music. I think I'm going to stop here, actually, because I do want to show a kind of long clip. And that way, people can see the clip, and maybe we can, in the discussion, talk about some of the issues involved.
Hi, um, I'm Andres Lara Quinte, and um, I'm going to be showing uh, two video works that uh, Bill has introduced earlier, but they're um, as they pertain to the uh, subject of this conference and um, and in the spirit of appropriation, I've kind of appropriated uh, a lot of the words that are used in. A, um, in the synopsis of this conference, and I'm going to like apply them to these videos and kind of hopefully try and uh, answer some of those questions that were posed a little bit. Bear with me just a second here. Actually forgot my presentation today. Okay, so um, the first video that I'm going to show, I titled Dr. Popper, and, um, and this what you see here is the original posting that incited what I consider um, this was well, kind of an unofficial collaboration with, um, and um, what I'm going to show you is this collaboration in its original form as it both exists for the person that incited it, um, this guy, Pop Chicago, and, um, and the way I use it is, is, is the exact same form. When I when I show it um, through my venues, and um, you can kind of read it here, but basically you get the gist of it. Uh, he was just kind of looking for, as he describes, either a masculine or blue collar uniformed or jock preferred. Um, a guy who's going to come into his house and uh, pop balloons for him um, because he uh, receives a lot of pleasure from that. Um, the video itself would be used only for his personal library or archive. Um, it was created digitally and uh, definitely has this potential for this kind of distribution, but in his case, it just resided in his home for his personal use. So I'll just start with showing that so to give a little bit more context to the things I'm going to say. see here is a menu that's created by him. Uh, I received it in the mail, uh, fully edited. You could say it's produced, uh, directed, written, whatever you want to call it, fully by him. And this is his copy, and this is the, the copy I show as an artist.
I'm actually going to go on talking while this is playing. Um, so, like I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of like use some of these words that were posed here. So, some of the questions were like um, asking about the technical and social processes by which culture is made and reproduced, and um, how is that challenged and enlarged by digital technologies? It's getting kind of loud. Um, so in, this, in these pieces that you'll see here, I kind of had this, using these words to describe it, I had this initial concept or desire um, to increase or enlarge myself and culture. Um, this, is, this is a real culture that exists out there, and, and if I'm going to put myself in it, will I at least, and mediate myself through these, these forms, will I at least enlarge myself or participate and uh, enlarge it as an artist participating in a culture? Um, Often, it, as as the culture is ever expanding, it seems very fragmented. So, um, and it's and it seems like these these forms don't necessarily cross, and so um, to they seem to be parallel. So, to ex it's interesting to me to exist in parallel what what I call parallel forms or parallel worlds or even universes. And what you're seeing here is only a selection of this ongoing process, and actually. Um, Pursued a variety of invitations. I'm going to see if I can turn this down. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, like I said, a variety of these invitations to collaboration I've actually pursued. Um, these range from uh, different medias, even um, from student films appearing in these to amateur modeling. Um, to even something more ephemeral like hosting a birthday party as a Johnny Depp lookalike or something like that. Um, each of these are a kind of mediation of myself and of performance. Um, it's an opportunity to produce oneself in media. Uh, these videos, obviously, that you're going to see here are considered to be of subcultural standing um, as fetish. Uh, fetish... I've used the definition defined as an excessive or irrational devotion to some activity. Um, that's naturally very interesting to me um, as it's um, a kind of attention to pop cultural activities. Um, yet, sub yet subculture is not necessarily arranged in opposition to pop culture. The two often inform each other and will commonly shift positions and shift places. Um, This is the original copy, so. Well, anyway, I'll take that as an opportunity to move on to the next video.
which um, I've titled MTMTN, and uh, that's an acronym of the company that uh, produced and created the, the video. I'm using the same title. Again, um, I responded to a, a, a posting on a website. I forgot to mention it's Craigslist is what I use for these two. And this is a totally open forum, and um, anyone can post pretty much anything. And uh, that's another, definitely another way to distribute um, a lot of different things. What's interesting and ironic and pertinent to this is that um, I was, again, as uh, a male, a copy of this in the end. Uh, this does exist on the web, um, available for download and um, for a small price. Uh, I was mailed a free copy. My computer ate it, and it was destroyed. And, um, and I, I needed this video to continue making art. And um, so I had to actually purchase in three parts for about six ninety nine a piece uh, to buy myself back, so to speak. I'm actually going to 
you think it's worse if it's light or more pressure? I don't know, like surprise tickling. Oh, so it's like when like yeah. something suddenly happens that like, you don't expect it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> So it's kind of hard to talk over these, um, <laughs> but I'm gonna go on in the, you know, for time reasons. And um, okay, so in the case of this tickle video um, and Dr. Popper, it definitely has a potential for circulation that's unlimited, uh, just depending on how the individual wanted to use it. In the case of this video, though, especially, it does exist on the internet and. Um, I have some had some screenshots, but I just won't show those at the moment. But um, you can you download it in three parts, and it's like five ninety nine for each part. Um, and it has to do for, and they've actually priced it according to it seems to be like a dollar a minute. Um, it's it's available for it's infinite and on this website essentially, and that's kind of a dramatic thing to say, but it, and theoretically it is and. Um, that's probably one of the most exciting notions that is kind of embedded in this concept of digital age to me and, and media. Um, and, and it's definitely possible, and there's a lot of reasons why it's not possible to actually have this kind of infinity. And um, Michael has touched on these, um, what they do at Aspect, but um, I'm going to kind of talk about some personal theory on that. Um, see, the question of uh, creativity, ownership, and collaboration, um, in the case of this video in particular, I'll just talk, I'll just break each one of those down and kind of talk about the ownership of this video. Technically, that's, that is of MTMTN, um, because in this case, I actually did, Dr. Popper, I did not, it was informal, but in this case, I actually did sign a legal contract that's, you know, uh, just some kind of a model agreement, pretty much. And, um, but to appropriate something involves taking possession of it, which is probably why also um, a gallerist completely signed out of this. And when she exhibits this at, at art fairs or something like that, for instance, she makes my full uh, liability and responsibility legally. Um, so that's probably also why I'll get sued at some point. Um, as to the question of its collaboration, that's pretty clear. Um, I'm there um, either agitating the space or in compliance with it. In this video, I, I think um, it's certainly agitating the space and the scene, um, not to mention the commercial contract and collaboration that we had. Um, to the question of its uh, creativity, um, I, kind of believe that's that's where where I come in um, and that's going to be determined about by how this lives on and um, if I have anything to do with that I think it's going to live on kind of as an apparition of an artwork um, so I'm a variety of, of, of ghostly existences uh, ranging from image to memory 
an ephemera to the live thing or the act. And uh, as an artist, I have a strong desire to produce the culture, not just reference it. That's part of the reason why I actually appear there in these spaces, which are certainly producing culture. Uh, On to the question of its reproduction, that's basically endless. Um, there's some, um, a question about why artists are, today are mimicking new forms of visual culture and their distribution systems. Um, I consider a lot of the work I make to be pop art. Um, I can kind of consider myself to be pop artist in general, in a generic kind of way. But um, a pop artist that is new would mimic or mirror the new forms of pop visual culture. It just seems kind of clear. Um, and I'm totally inspired by the whole form and even the distribution system. And even at the risk of confusion with the popular sources, it's a yeah, because I like to get really close to the source. Um, this, is, this question of confusion is a good one, though, and um, I often think of it in relation to art making. I saw these spaces which are presented here in these videos as um, being very rich spaces, ripe with experiences, both exciting, both exciting and challenging to the viewer. Uh, to fit into the space, I had to get very close um, to the source. And in, in these cases, I am the source or a piece of the source. What I do with this document thereafter also creates art. There's kind of two stages, the, 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 the performance that happens in the space for the limited audience of the, of the, of the creators, and then the actual, another, another part of the art is, is the document and the video that you see here and that I show. Um, but really, where the art comes in um, is, is, is the, to me is, is the dialogue that's created around it, the discourse. Um, the question of artificial scarcity. Um, I think these videos are a great example of that. Um, I, I do show these videos with the gallery, um, and I have limit, limited them. Um, but, for instance, what if uh, Pop Chicago, like the balloon fetishist, uh, decides he wants to give away his a million copies or he wants to sell them or something for really cheap or he wants to put them on his website um, after I've limited them as fine art. I really can't do much about that at this point because, I mean, we didn't, we didn't have any formal agreement and there's no contract. Um, but to me, that's okay. And um, that might upset a lot of people. might upset some collectors, and but I don't have to worry about that. I don't have any of those right now. But uh, <laughs> in the end, it doesn't really matter to me because... Um, it's about access, and in the case of Dr. Popper and MT, MTM, I'm actually increasing its distribution and access, and I feel like it's additive, um, and that's because I'm increase, adding to a different venue. There's different audiences that are, that are watching this. Um, to the question of increasing a work's unique value, um, much more than scarcity, whether it's real or fake, uh, like I said before, it's the discourse that's produced, if it's popular, very significant, uh, that increases the work's unique value um, to me. It's not necessarily the scarcity of it. Um, these, ve- these videos of our art that exist inside the exact same vehicle as the real thing it mimics, um, but something else is still produced. And my thing, kind of the art thing, is, that's happening here is not necessarily tangible. Um, it's a conceptual space, and that might be, if anything, the thing that I'm marketing. Um, to the question of increasing its visibility through broader reproduction, um, um, there's current distribution in fine art, 
um, it does have tight control, and there's there's problems with that, and they're getting addressed um, as I've seen here today. But um, especially as art gets less real or physical, it starts to get kind of weirder and weirder. Um, to answer this question, it's important to ask um, why fine art actually hasn't reached this broader reproduction. Um, that leads to another question to me, um, and that's, that's just the question of what kind of broader reproduction are you talking about? And there's just not a lot of um, examples of that yet. And um, Aspect, for instance, is, is giving a good example of how that could be done, um, but it's still problematic. Some examples that I've seen, obviously, everyone's seen is like is popular music and films, as Hollywood and and the, and the record industry. Um, and obviously, we don't want it to look like that. We don't want it to feel like that because it's different. Um, fine art doesn't find its expression in mass distribution. That's not like that's not where it comes from. Um, that's not where its expression comes from. And in the end, that leads me to believe that. Um, art is not pop, and even if it's called pop art, and even if I call myself a pop artist. And, uh, and that's all. Thanks. So it's one, um, one issue that sort of came up with everyone was uh, the uh, what's gained from where and when you get to uh, see things. And um, I'm going to ask uh, each of you, if, uh, since the we've almost talked about other distribution systems, alternative distribution systems as uh, sort of this utopic answer, what's to be gained, I mean, as someone from the museum world, when you actually get to see something in the full large screen installation, sound, uh, with the scarcity, with that feeling that you may never get to see this again, is there anything that's gained by that, or is it a, is, 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 is that a total loss? Mike, do you want to start on that? Well, I would say it really depends a lot on the, um, the format itself. I think, you know, you touched on it in the, in the introduction. Um, there are works that are, meant, that, are, that are linear in narrative, and those often lose in that situation. But there are also works that are non-linear and non-narrative and are meant to be looped and really meant to be entered in and left sort of almost at random. Um, I'm going to get rid of that so it's not distracting. Um, and that, that is a, a different experience, um, which can be somewhat technically recreated in the home, but that's not, that, that is definitely lost and, and different. So that's the first place. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd say there are some works that are actually meant, in a certain sense, to be experienced not necessarily in narrative ways. Um, inserting it into spaces where you know people have kind of limited time is a kind of strategy for maybe reminding viewers that they can't get it that way, um, which is something that, yeah, sure, at home, you could sit down, go through it, quote-unquote, get all the information out of it. And if you're looking at it, you know, from a purely kind of intentionalist kind of um, way of looking at it, then you get it. But in a way, if it's you know process-based or um, based in you know kind of ideas about structure, you may get it much earlier, and you can leave whenever you you know have had enough. So it's it's kind of in some ways enforcing something that you wouldn't have in a kind of home viewing situation. Yeah. Well, in the, in the last Whitney Biennial, there was one piece that the artist, uh, I can't remember his name, who's Providence-based, uh, put 
up on YouTube at the same time as the Whitney Biennial is kind of uh, saying, well, you can watch it repeatedly here or wait on a two-hour loop for it to come, for this three-minute piece to come up again. And actually, the Biennial was installed on a flat-screen monitor by the elevator, so it was uh, almost impossible to stand there and watch it. So it was kind of a, a gesture to go, well, you know, since no, none of my friends are going to see it here, at least I can tell, I can send them the YouTube link. So like, there are things, but also one of the things is the uh, idea that you can't revisit something. Uh, that uh, when you get to see uh, a, a longer time scale piece, that you know, it's theoretically, yeah, you can buy the DVD of a, of a, a long film later. But the idea that, that you, you get to see something once and the, all that's left is your memory is kind of interesting too. Yeah, I mean that was that sort of got touched on. Um, the last, the most recent issue of Aspect is on performance art, <clears throat> and that's a, a major factor in performance art. There are a lot of performances that aren't meant to be recorded. They don't want them recorded. You were either there to experience it, or you weren't. I mean, I, I sort of felt that way about my wedding. I didn't want it showing up on America's Funniest Home Videos. That was the privilege, <laughs> and then it did anyway. It did anyway. Right. But <laughs> it was it was the privilege of the people who were at my wedding to 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 experience it. And there's performance art that that sort of and performance artists that feel the same way about their work. Um, and then there are performance art. There's performance art that's meant to be recorded and meant to be replayed. And there really are different categories of work. And so there is a self-selecting process that happens, at least for Aspect. You know, any artist that approaches us has a certain... It comes with an intentionality and has pre-cleared themselves yeah. to be widely distributed. Um, but that sort of... Elim- they've already, but through that process, we've eliminated a lot of people who want the exact opposite experience. You know, just one more question before, before I hand it over to the uh, audience questions. Uh, the tickle fetishists, the people who actually have downloaded your uh, film because they like tickle fetish videos. Right. It's like, I sort of, I, I don't know if I'm being too uh, cautious politically here, but I'm, I'm sort of worrying that we're actually not sort of taking them seriously as an audience. Uh, that uh, they uh, that they might actually be looking at a whole other criteria of aesthetics when and and that they mm-hmm. like this guy's tickle fetish videos better than the other three companies that make t- tickle fetish videos. Mm-hmm. How do you relate to them? I mean, just in terms of your own imagination of what, how this. I mean, as I said, other people's fetishes become performance because they're so strange. How do you think about them in, uh, out there in the audience? And there's probably more of them than are actually are in the art world. Yeah, I definitely thought about that a lot. Um, you know the sensational value of showing those, and um, in relation to being a performance artist and like, someone that's going to be exhibitionist or something like that. Um, I think, though, in the case of these two videos, most when I go into these spaces, it's not even though I'm I'm there to pro- thinking about producing um, a discourse that is um, an, an art. Um, I, I feel like I'm in compliance, in full compliance with with. Or I try my best. You know? That you're not making fun of the Absolutely tickle not. fetishers. I'm not there yeah. to, um, to uh, disrupt or, or break it apart or necessarily. Um, I'm there to, like, to try and perform and do my best. In the case of the Tickle video, it, it really is a disruption. It is agitated because I'm, not, I'm really clearly not that ticklish there, and it's, and it's, and it's awkward and stuff. You try hard. Yeah, I, t- I tried, and I went with best intentions. Um, and in the end, it's just, it's just like, okay, so what's... Who's benefiting more? Like, I think this is a better art piece than a tickle video for these for these fetishists who who want to see um, a man uh, reach hysterics, and that's well, that's really where the thrill comes from. And I'm clearly not reaching hysterics in that video. Um, 
in the, in the case of Dr. Proper, I really felt like I performed well. And it's part of the concept to me. Um, it's like, I'm, I'm an art performer, but can I, be, can I be like a popular performer too? Can I make these audiences happy to whatever size they are? Like, even if it's a mass audience or if it's just the, the one balloon guy in his video. Right. I think I made him happy. I'm not sure about um, the Tickle video, although it was like, oh, it was one of the most downloaded for, for a few weeks. Okay. Now, I think uh, this is being recorded, so I think you're supposed to ask questions from the microphone. Um, so can we get some, uh, uh, if you can come up and ask your questions from the mic? Hi, this is for Andre. Um, Hi. Do you ever feel like you're not doing fetishes or are you really strictly interested in responding to the fetishes of others yeah it's, it's fully responsive I've never actually um, um, put, put myself out there um, I, I thought about that but I, I hadn't actually gotten to that point so it's really just me replying to these these, um, these worlds you know and, and trying to like uh, drop into them um, to an effort to mediate myself, I think if it was um, if it was my own platform and my own media, then it would just be different. Um, or I guess you said invite them to create the thing. I would be open to that, definitely. Yeah. It doesn't bring up the issue about like uh, since you're not revealing your own fetish uh, level, I feel like well you get to reveal these other people. So there's a uh, yeah. There's that. Hi, this is one for Tony. It was a great work, really great work. Um, I have a question. Um, this relates to um, about 15 years ago, uh, I was on the board of directors of uh, Pacifica Radio in L.A. and had a chance to interview George Clinton about what happened to funk music because there was a period in the mid-'70s for those of y'all of that, that vintage like me you know, we was grooving hard on the dance floors, you know, and it was a whole party atmosphere and a real communal and sharing kind of vibe and atmosphere, and all of a sudden... It just disappeared, and, and you couldn't hear funk music. It was because we were, you know, we were grooving to the funk at the time. And all of a sudden, you could not hear funk on the radio. It was not being played in the clubs, uh, and it was nothing happening. And, and, and George Clinton said that there was a very interesting thing that occurred with the music uh, uh, companies, the record companies. And they appropriated music from the gay discotheques in England, and they had been so intimidated by these all-black groups and people like George Clinton breaking away from the record companies and out of their control that the way to reestablish control was to uh, a power move where this music came in. And, and it's, it, makes, it seems to me it would make for some very interesting subject matter with your technique and your talent to be able to work with that because I know George Clinton would be very interested in participating in something like that as a mashup, remixed man himself. Well, that sounds really, really interesting and, and really provocative. I mean, I, I think in some of the work that I've done, I've actually talked about kind of what the ideological practices are of record companies, sort of how they approach artists, what their relationships are in terms of the kinds of entertainments they want to sort of promote and produce and those that perhaps are of less interest or, you know, that are, you know, problematic in terms of, artist control and agency for one thing and you know also I think to some extent about you know simply reproducing certain taste cultures through repetition radio airplay or lack of access there to um, you know the sort of paradigm of what what gets 
especially in the early days, say of MTV, what what are made into you know music videos, what what genres are not, um, how those you know genres then do get represented inside quote unquote the videos that they allegedly control and you know are meant to promote their acts. I mean, those dynamics are really kind of interesting to me, and I think ultimately, you know, as sociological and political as almost anything else in this culture. So, yeah. One last thing on, on, on that issue, with the, because it's very topical, um, the, di the dialogue, or we want to call it that, that occurred with the, after the Imus remarks, and then it, it got uh, cut off very quickly. Uh, one of the things I noticed that was not really being focused on and discussed is how these 10 to 12 song rotation, music, uh, record uh, song rotations on a radio station really dictate in large measure what music gets diffused throughout the population in terms of what people hear and then what they want to keep hearing because they keep hearing the same thing. And so that, that dynamic of it. Actually, sort of the larger cross history between pop culture and music television and art video is, uh, is, is I, there's got to be some PhD candidate working on it because I remember in the early days of MTV they had the art breaks and they would invite different artists to do the 30-second to one-minute clips. And, uh, and also at the same period, Saturday Night Live was including art videos. Uh, as, and I think the, probably, uh, for the whole generation, most people heard the term art video first when it was being described of what those little weird things were on Saturday Night Live. And uh, someone, I, 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 it seems like really ripe field for someone to uh, be working about those two forms as early video distribution. Yeah, and also, you know, that kind of cross linkage between avant-garde film and media technique and advertising discourses which, you know, predate MTV and even MTV's, you know, the directorial sort of approaches of MTV makers, you know, people who made videos for MTV also, you know, where things are kind of based on, you know, tropes that are recognizable from avant-garde film practice. They weren't invented by MTV, though widely disseminated th there through, and, you know, sometimes you have people, you know, come to those techniques as though they were kind of originated there, and so right. there's a kind of maybe complex historical argument to be unpacked about, oh yeah, where do all those cool effects that we've seen so much in these other contexts, where might they come from? I think something else that's kind of interesting for me about that the original question is, um, you know, my goal is actually to try to make the art market act more and more like the music market, you know, large distribution at low cost. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear that, you know, there are some major pitfalls to that approach in terms of the you need massive systems in order to do that and lots yeah, of like big who players. Who controls and then, the rights and to then, recordings. Right, and who controls the rights to recordings and who's controlling what is being distributed when you right. need a massive distribution mechanism. This um, panel has made me think about the um, relationship between um, artists who are interested in issues of representation, artists who are interested in the interface between our lived experiences as human beings and the mediated culture and the um, mainstreaming of pornography. Uh, it seems to me that one of the things worth thinking about is, um, especially in relation to the idea of art and performance and pornography and issues of representation and self-representation. And it seems to me that... Um, the mainstreaming of pornography provides a, a kind of an opportunity 
for people to think about those issues in ways that are um, not not just about transgression and about self-representation, but about um, about the nature of the lived experience and about the relationship between the artist and the audience. Um, because as, the, as an artist, uh, your understanding of those works is very different than the folks who are buying them for $6.99 for, for whom that work is a means to masturbate. And so the idea of the mainstreaming of pornography as something that has been enabled by the Internet, something that has, has been becoming part, more and more a part of a normal or a, a normalization process is one that has really interesting implications for thinking about identity and audiences and artists and, and, and the nature of performance and the function of performances for our whole selves as, as artists and as sexual beings. And I just would invite the panelists to comment on that. One, one thing is we, uh, uh, there are a number of artists who gone in and infiltrated and worked in the porn industry, in mainstream porn and both gay and straight, to, uh, to sort of take controls of those mechanisms of power and show things behind, behind the scenes. One of the, uh, uh, one of the things that, that made, made uh, Andres' work stand out when I first saw it was that because, well, and this is a, I don't want to go off too much of this tangent, but because of the internet, there are so for people who have very specialized tastes. Like I could, you can show the balloon popping video in any context, and it's not going to be porn, even though it's dirty, because it's like it's. Uh, I mean, it's popping balloons. You know, it's like kids, uh, a, a, a kids party video. Uh, but it's but in this sort of strange dynamic because of who's popping that and the voiceover of the guy. Um, and those communities, like the balloon-popping people, would have never met uh, 20 years ago because there wasn't a place for them to meet. Uh, that's why I started thinking about performance art with this, was because uh, when presumably for people who, uh, if, it's, if you're not into that world, and there are many who are, uh, it's, just, it's, it's a very strange activity, and it does look more like some sort of endurance-based process. Yeah, certainly. Um. And that's the that's the initial attraction. It's just like, well, I can bring this into I can a different discourse, and this and this can be something else, you know. And um, the balloon popping video to me is I don't know. It's just full of art reference <coughs> to me. It's just um, it's a, a space and form and, and time and um, Andy Warhol, and it's just like it makes me think of a lot of things. Um, yeah. There's actually a photograph by a well-known Swedish artist named uh, Annika van Halswolf of her popping a balloon, and it's called, I believe, Experiment in Space and Time. Uh, and it's, uh, and it's, it's, but it's actually exactly the same gesture, but in a still photograph. You know, I actually think of the reverse, which is um, the piece, um, um, <clears throat> it was actually an influence and anxiety and gratitude. The, the videos where they remade um, um, Vito and Conchi? Vito Conchi's. And you know, the, it goes from being performance art to being porn. And the reason that happens is because the, the actors go from being unshaven artists to, you know, shaven models. And the transformation, without changing the context, yeah. 
It was actually unbelievably dramatic. Maybe I should just explain a little bit. It's a, a, a one-on piece by Paul McCarthy and Mike Kelly called Fresh and Conchi, where they remade the most fetishistic of the early Vito and Conchi videos, but with really good-looking people. Because their theory was that early video art couldn't find its audience because the people were so plain. <laughs> and, uh, and, it's, uh, and, it, and they, fo- they, f- they filmed these uh, early Ancachi ones um, with good-looking people in these Hollywood mansions with this, uh, like, prurient lighting. And it's a very funny piece because you recognize it. It's like, um, you know, the, the, the per- uh, uh, no, uh, uh, Vito yelling, get away, get away, but it's done by this fashion model. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it was interesting turning on its head of that, uh, that dynamic. You know, I think we are out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank all of our panelists for coming this, er, out this early rainy morning. Thank you. Thanks. If there are any more questions, just come up, but we can answer them casually up here. Now we got to get your desk. You can't keep that. <laughs> 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 <laughs>